awareness is a huge thing. We have been, again, it's been beat into us from early childhood to be aware of ourselves, aware of what we're saying, aware of what we're doing, aware that we're twitching, aware that we're stimming, aware, 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 aware. So we have this hyper awareness of how we, of the effect that we have on our environment. But NTs wander through, never having to question anything that they say or that they do or that, you know, or the effect that they have on others. There's that they don't have the same scrutiny. And I'm not saying that they're all blinded and, and unaware, but I'm saying that the difference it is that difference in awareness that allows certain people, NT or otherwise, if you've got that heightened sense of awareness through for whatever re- for whatever reason, and I think that our our our, sen- our sense sensitivities add to that. If you can hear more and you can see more and you can feel more than the person next to you, then you're automatically going to be more in tune with your environment. Gorilla Aspie's podcast, written, recorded, and produced by Paul Wadey. Hello. Now, in this podcast, we'll be featuring my very good friend, Dr. Ria Lena, who is described by her Wikipedia page, which is how she wanted me to relate to her, as a British comedian, actress and writer and a winner of the Ethnic Multimedia Award. She's known for her TV appearances in The World Stands Up, Mega Mela Malai Comedy and Sweet and Sour on BBC Three. Prior to her career as a comic, Rhea acquired a Bachelor of Science in Experimental Pathology, a Master of Science in Forensic Science and a Doctorate in Viral Bioinformatics and worked as an IT forensic investigator for the Serious Fraud Office. Famously, it was me who outed her as autistic. I came up to her at a burlesque gig where she was doing the sound and light, and I said, you do know you're autistic, don't you? I then went and put this on social media. She later commented that this was something she was aware of at the time, but it was me who gave the push. Anyway, she worked this into the story of a show she did in the Edinburgh Festival in 2013, and the show was called Special. Now, you're going to hear some references to the Edinburgh Festival, where we both played in there at the same time. Rhea was playing a pub called Frankenstein in the basement, which is a very large venue, and used to tackle these enormous audiences of people late at night with a very, very loud, aggressive PA going. In a costume, often standing on the tables, performing brilliantly and dealing with some very rowdy crowd members. I was very impressed with her. By 2016, she was in her own solo show on Edinburgh, She was also working uh, with some other people in their show. And the third show she did was called Etty Boo, E-T-T-I-E-B-O-O. You've got to look out for that. It's a variety show where Rhea takes on a character and introduces lots of other performers. And they also hear a reference to James Burke. He was a brilliant TV presenter who had his own science show, and he had this gift for explaining science. And he's a great hero of mine. I really do think Rhea could do very well doing that kind of thing as well. So I'd rather talk her into it on the quiet. And here is my very good friend on life. Socially, I found I, I found it fascinating that people say that the internet's been so good for autistic people because then they can finally communicate with others without needing the, you know, there's no 
facial expressions. There's no eye contact. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier on Facebook. I find that the same social structures that exist in real life, if you go back to the classic American high school simile, Mm -hmm. metaphor, metaphor, microcosm, (laughs) uh, where you've got your jocks and you've got your cheerleaders and you've got your geeks and then you've got the loners. And I went to an American high school and even though there were only 66 kids in my graduating class, we still had those hierarchies. They still existed. The cool kids, the ones that, you know, the one, (laughs) excuse me, the cool kids, the wannabes, yeah. (laughs) The cool kids, the wannabes, all of that. And I was invisible. I was invisible in high school. And I find that on Facebook, it's much the same. There can be a whole group discussion in my, in my, um, you know, amongst my colleagues. And and I I like to hope that I'm respected for the job that I do on stage and everything else. But that doesn't mean that I'm socially uh, in the midst of it. It it doesn't work that way. And and the number of times I've made a comment or posted something to have zero responses from my from my peers it happens all the time and i find that that facebook i I don't feel any more secure on facebook Mm -hmm. in certain environments than i did in person i find the same thing i find that their responses and i've had people pm me and go ria that response wasn't quite right you might want to rephrase that and what did you mean by that like all the time i'm making the same social blunders online that i that i made in person so should i say blunders this is the thing it's not it's, it's more like you don't fit for positive reasons as well as negative ones. This, 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 the idea is not that simple, oh, I made a faux pas, I made a mistake, I didn't relate properly. It's more like it, the situation happened because of ability and strengths and positive things as much as negative things in each situation. It's, it's well, I don't think it's, simple, it's, even, it's not even something that you quantify yeah. positively or negatively, you quantify it by the majority. If the majority of people that I'm interacting with are, for the sake of this podcast, neurotypical, then they determine what is considered to be a social blunder. Yeah. If I am in, an, if I'm in a, a Facebook group where everybody is like me or understands me or gets me, then, then the way that I communicate is no longer considered to be blunderous. Yeah. But if I'm in a, you know, if I'm in a neurotypical group, Mm. then then suddenly the things that I say are seen as jarring or inappropriate or not quite on topic or when I or but but it's it's not even it's not even that that happens that frequently I'm you know as with speech mm. you self-edit and you consider carefully and that's the beauty of Facebook is that when you speak it comes out your mouth and you can't you can't grab it back but with a post you can edit it you can have a look at it you yeah, can leave yeah. it for later you can go back and re-edit it so there's yeah. a lot of advantages to that to to that form of communication yeah. but it is it's it's actually for me it's the social <laughs> distancing <laughs> the social isolation of of being in a community mm. on facebook yeah. and still being invisible right now this is ignoring algorithms and you know and all the other stuff behind it. Obviously, there are going to be times where you put a post out there and the algorithm goes, no, no one's going to see this today and nobody sees it. And then you think, oh, no one's responded. I've been ignored. Yeah. That happens all the time. But I'm talking about where you know that you're visible, where you know that it's been seen, um, or where you have to, which can be quite grueling socially is to, to private message people go, Hey, do you mind commenting on my post? Do you mind? Mm. Did you see my post? Is it okay? 
Do you mind interacting with me? Like that's almost the worst is when you have to grovel for something that other people seem to naturally, naturally get given in spades. And the other thing is, which is fascinating, is that something when I say it, when it comes out of my mouth, is considered to be aggressive or rude or, oh, Rhea, you went too far. But when another person says it, oh, that's just who they are. Oh, yeah, but that's Dave. Dave's is like that, isn't he? Dave's a bit of a dick. Dave does that but all the time. Why would people do project that on you? you project think? what on me? On what you just described. Why would those values be present? Yeah. Well, that's always been the case is that, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm a comedian for a living. I make people laugh for a living. And I knew as a teenager that I was funny. I knew that I had wit. I knew that I had, I knew that in, that there were comments that I could yeah. make in class that were uh, academically funny. But the thing is, is that if I said them, no one would laugh because of where I fit in the social structure. But if the popular person said it, everybody yeah. would laugh. So it, that's the thing about, it isn't just what you say, it's who says it and how they view yeah. you. And, yeah. and, and I have to be, I find that I have to be very careful on Facebook because there's that, there's that un, there's a network that neurotypicals have that connect them to each other that they don't know exists, but mm -hmm. they know if you're not one of them. Yeah. It's kind of like body snatchers. They don't know that you're an, Im they don't know that you're an, uh, they don't consciously know that you're an imposter. No, no, doing it. If yeah, the shit hits the fan, right. you're not going to be, you're not in the lifeboat with them. Yep. If the ship goes down, they're not, they're not even remembering that you're on the ship to save you a space in the lifeboat. Yeah, That's what I mean by invisible. It's happened yeah. in school, my Buddhist movement. It happens, yeah. it, it happens with women, I think, as much, I think it happens socially with women. Like, yeah. you know, the female autistics are called chameleons because of mm -hmm. our ability to adapt to situations. Yeah. I can go in and adapt to a group of women in a social situation, but it doesn't mean that I'm automatically included in their social group. Yeah. Even if I can play along and act along, there's something they know I'm, they seem to understand on some level that I'm acting along, that yeah. it's not, you know, that I am not, that I'm consciously yeah, making those social choices. That. Yeah, freak people out, but I can, in the past I've looked aggressive or intimidating or scary, you know, been with people on a certain basis. But what you're describing, you're forced to do that. It's not what you want to do. Any autistic women are forced to do that. You know, I know you want to belong, but, but at the end of the day, you can't actually be uh, sincere, you see. And I came along, and I'll give you um, a space in which you can do that without conditions. I don't fancy you, for example. I just want to be your friend and relate to you. And then I actually listen to you and engage with your way of relating. And that's what I do to other people. It's what the doctor would do. And so I, I grew up with a role model. That's what he did. He talked to everyone, the worst and the best, the same way. So I meet you. And then, this is one thing I want to do here is to, to empower you to, to actually let rip. And do we have a language we can use? Have you ever been allowed to develop your own communication? That is I don't understand the question. Yeah. Have you ever actually been allowed to be with other people and talk, real talk? Do you even know what it is to be free enough from other people's projections and what you just described? You know, just to, to talk the way you want to talk. Yeah, when you make friends, when yeah. you make good friends, they accept yeah. you for who you are. Right. But those are much smaller, more intimate groupings. A, yeah. because I don't personally, I don't need, so every one of my friends, I'm, I'm usually, I usually have what I'd call one-on-one -on -one friendships. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. I'll make a line or a triangle. That's mm -hmm. kind of, that's the extent. 
I can't even think of the last time I was in a square. If you think of, you know, where you are a group of four that go around. I've been in a group of three where there are three of us, yeah. um, mainly one-to-ones. I have a lot of one-to-one relationships. And then sometimes it's one-to-two, you know, or where there's three of us and we all have our own friendship with each other, but the three of us come together. Yeah. But in terms of large groups, nah, never, never had large groups. So yeah, of course, whenever you're in a small, yeah. understandable friendship group, then you can be who you are. Uh, and be who you want to be. You can also be who you want to be when you're one on many, as in stand up, because then you control the entire space. The entire space is controlled by you. Obviously, there are rules. Comedy has rules. The first one being you better make them laugh, otherwise, stop <laughs> taking up the space. Yes. But, but that is one of the reasons I think why. Uh, and it, and it comes down to the whole extrovert introvert thing as well. They found you know yeah. they used to think you were either an extrovert or an introvert. Then they discovered that you can be an extrovert and an introvert yeah. at the yeah. same time. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's something that that autistics are. Autistics are almost forced introverts a lot of the time because yeah. they've been it's been beaten into them yes. that they're not doing it right. Yeah. But actually. If you, if you leave an autistic to develop naturally in the wild, they're probably actually more extrovert than introvert because they have no boundaries. They have no yeah. limits. They have no, uh, they have no reason to filter. So then what you create by taking an extroverted autistic child, beating them into submission over 18 years, you end up with an extrovert introvert. Yeah. And, that's, and that's one of the reasons uh, why comedy works for many autistics, but particularly right. many Aspies, particularly me, is because you put me in a room with the an audience and go, hey, go mingle. Go be the most popular person in the room. I'm going to feel miserable at that. You want me to go around to every little group and try and butt into their conversation when they all know each other better and they don't really want to hang out with me? Never going to work. You put them in an audience, tell them to sit down and shut up, and I'm going to do a skill set that none of them possibly have a hope of getting. Oh, yeah, that, that's my... Well, I've seen yeah, you okay. do that in costumes, standing on tables in the basement of Frankenstein, tackling <laughs> armies of people, huge numbers of 50 or 60 people with a loud PA going and doing amazing things, tackling huge guys who weren't listening to your show, doing all sorts of, of unique stuff, improvising spare at the moment, riding on that energy just unique work and, the, and how the hell is that a, a disorder and a disability when it means that you've got you, know, you can develop a skill set like that just for fun basically as well as to make a living i don't know it's a very weird i don't think the term of it, an ability or a disability is appropriate either of them, you know uh, uh, order or disorder that the whole frame of reference is naive it's a disorder. talent talent oh i forgot talent Talent, get it, yeah. <laughs> Gives you a talent. Or you, it's just you a talent because you don't know how much talent, ability, personality, maturity, and intelligence are intertwined with your autistic nature. Yes, it's not simple. Well, for sure. or, or it's part of it. I think, yeah. I don't know that they're intertwined with it separately or that they come, rather than separate strands that, that, that braid together, I think that they come out of, out of the autistic strands. The fact that I'm over-analytical means that I'm going to be examining that room and that audience or picking up yeah. picking up feedback that other people aren't picking up and that all feeds into it. That all feeds into the the machine. That's all the input and then you take it, you know, and you, and you spit it back out into into performance. Mm. And I think that that is part of, like if I'm teaching stand up and performance, then that is part of it. Part of it is going, okay, what um how best to play a room. Yeah. And, and you know, 
you know, what are you looking, what should you be aware of? Because I think that's a huge thing. Awareness is a huge difference I find between autistics and NTs. I know it sounds so derivative to just divide us into two groups, but for the yeah. sake of the podcast, people understand what I mean. Yeah. But awareness is a huge thing. We have been, again, it's been beat into us from early childhood to be aware of ourselves, aware of what we're saying, aware of what we're doing, aware that we're twitching, aware that we're stimming, aware, 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 aware. So we have this hyper awareness of, how we, of the effect that we have on our environment. But NTs wander through, never having to question anything that they say or that they do or that, you know, or the effect that they have on others. There's that they don't have the same scrutiny. And I'm not saying that they're all blinded and, and unaware, but I'm saying that the difference, it is that difference in awareness that allows certain people, NT or otherwise, if you've got that heightened sense of awareness through for whatever reason for whatever reason. And I think that our 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 sense our sense sensitivities add to that if you can hear more and you can see more and you can feel more than the person next to you then you're automatically going to be more in tune with your environment and that is one of the things that stand up is is that you are you are driving horses in a room but you are also in control you know the, the carriage is the room and the horses are the people and you need to be aware of of all of that and the wind direction and and the terrain and you know and, and your destination all of that and, and so that's one of the advantages. Laugh. And have a laugh. And, and ultimately, it's a positive experience. And it's a real you're experience. Funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're authentic as well. You're never putting it on. It's, it's, it's a thing. It's quite a thing to witness, really. And people appreciate that as well, particularly in the, in the stressful environments I've seen you operate in. You haven't had the luxury of the, the quiet room where you can build up the cumulative humor he said something funny something else funny something else and get them on your side i have that with my shows. sometimes you face an audience and they're roaring all the time and it's great and you can you can relax and then other audiences it's like a graveyard with my show uh again the james burke thing i try to develop a a, a, a technique that's very much um description of zen buddhism where you're even keel you're neither up nor down you don't need feedback of good nor bad so if you had the complete silence that's fine you can just be uh, it tries to be more and more sincere rather than play to a gallery instead of putting energy into the audience to get them up you're like okay well this is it that's it that's it and you just you just be sincere but whatever you do avoid demonstration and putting it on i i have done that in the past trying to force energy into an audience uh, our friend Tricity came to see me in uh, Ryan the Dropkick Murphys my first night mm. years ago when I was forcing it. Aww. She told me off. Mm -hmm. You're right. Thank you. It was really good advice. And after that, I was because there's always the first day of the Edinburgh run. It's like <laughs> you know, putting it on. And then after that, you're like, oh yeah, the technique starts rolling. You can have a laugh with people in the audience. Take it easy. Were you going to go up this year? Uh, paid for it. Pay for the accommodation. And now what? It's all getting uh, taken over to 2021. So okay. the, um, yeah, the uh, place where I was going to stay is 2021 and the Edinburgh Festival. I wanted to keep the money so I don't want them going broke. And of course, Alex Petty, Laughing Horse, hooray, Lemby Price. I was going to go up a few days early and help him out. I decided I can't. That's always it. much appreciated, I know. Yeah, I keep turning up and it's all done. I say, right, Alex, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to turn up nice and early, about four days early, and just run around. I can, do, I can set PAs up. I can do all that stuff. And when I was a teenager and then follow the circuit, light and sound. and then Posters. There's so much work to do. Yeah. yeah. Have, you done that. Have you done that kind of thing yourself? 
Done which which gone up early and given them a hand. Nope. Unfortunately, I've been unable to. I've often been work gigging like right up until the day before. And then with the kids, it's it, it was just a, it's a case of finance. It's a case of I don't have the luxury of the extra four days um, to do it. So, no. So I'm always very grateful on behalf of everyone who can't for those who do. Because I'm well aware that that I haven't been able to contribute that way. It's this great being part of the free fringes because we feel, you know, the need to pull it all together and to give. And there's a lot of caring people. I don't know, people who aren't caring. Like, nah, I'm not going to be here much longer. I'm just here to get noticed and then I'll be really famous, you know. So it's, it's really good that we've, we've talked about these things. It's interesting that instead of a lot of questions about your career and, and how you're coming out and everything, I'm, we managed to start on a subject you love, which is science and your, your expertise. And then we segued into your experience of being you in this world. Did you find that since you really went into being autistic about 2013, you've been able to develop more of an understanding of yourself and the world as an autistic? Has it helped, in other words? Yes and no. Yeah. It explained a lot about myself, but at the end of the day, it's it's like being blind and then at 32 someone telling you you know you're actually a brunette you're not a blonde mm. and then your whole life is like but i've always identified as a blonde and they go well yeah. no you're a brunette and everyone sees you that way and you go oh that explains so much but yeah. then at some point you have to just get on with it and go okay that's my hair color but what but what else am i going to do about that that's mm. just that's the color that my hair grows i can't change it it's always been that way. It always will be that way. Okay, it explains a lot from the past, but you move on with it. So, no, I get contacted by a lot of people. Uh, there's a lot of research being done into being autistic and being in the arts and being a performer. And um, I try and participate as best I can in those. It, it depends on the focus because I'm an ex-academic. I'm obviously a little bit picky. So I, not often, but there have been one or two students that have contacted me and I said what's the thesis or what's the drive and I've gone no I'm sorry but I don't I don't agree with that at all yeah. um, and I've told them why uh, and but generally I try and help but other than that I'm keen to promote what an autistic female looks like yeah. but I'm also very hyper conscious of the fact that I don't I don't I'm not a typical autistic female but then who is but so I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact that it happens it so happens <clears throat> and maybe this is part nature part nurture that I am very similar to a male autistic like I'm very similar to how it is caricaturally portrayed yep. in the arts so you're Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory um, or uh, uh, who's the other geek that I can't think of right now well, you know, I grew up with Star Trek. So Spock and then Data, these were my favorite characters. These yeah. are the people I related to. Uh, the kind of very robotic, Sherlock Holmes, I, I read all of, of Conan Doyle growing up. Um, you elementary TV series? I have. It took me a while to adjust yeah. to it. I mean, I like the actors. I, re I, I will support anyone Asian. So Lucy Liu, I was like, I will watch it. <laughs> and I enjoy it, but I wouldn't say, for me, it's not, yeah. it's not on the top shelf of Sherlock Holmes stuff. I enjoyed yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch's one more because I felt that it was more true yeah. to the original books mm. than elementary. But I do enjoy those characters, though, generally. I don't know if you know of something called Scorpion. 
I keep hearing about Skulking. I saw the first episode. Yeah. I didn't get into it, yeah. It's yeah. it's about four, quote, geniuses, i.e. people whose <laughs> IQs are 160 or higher. Right. Uh, and I'm watching it with my daughter right now. I, and I... I enjoy Scorpion because I yeah. feel again, a lot of similarity with the way that they think, the way that they relate to emotion. Um, but so, but coming back to it, I would like to portray female autism in the media more, but I worry that if I gave them who I am, I would look just as much like a 2d caricature as Sheldon from the big bang theory looks. Yeah. And he gets a lot of criticism for, or it, they get a lot of criticism for the way that Sheldon is portrayed. Now they've never used the A word. They've never actually said he's autistic, but they've done everything. But, uh, but the problem is, is that my, the way that it, it presents in me in terms of being, you know, calculated data focused, um, constantly, you know, with the grind, the wheels constantly grinding, mm. um, you know, with the, the emotional misunderstandings, I worry that they think that I've just taken a male character and made her female because that's who I am. But that isn't necessarily, I don't know that a lot of female autistics would watch it and go, yep, yep. I totally relate to what she's feeling and saying and doing. Mm. Uh, so that's my personal insecurity about it. But yeah. other than that, I don't, I don't want, I don't like, and I don't want to use the label. I like using the label scientist. And the reason is because I worked hard through three degrees to earn the right to call myself a scientist. Yeah. I did not work to be autistic. So to put, to, to go out there and be like, Hey, I'm an autistic comic. I'm not going to ignore it completely. If it's to my advantage, of course, I'm going to put my hand up and go, Oh, you're looking for diversity by the way. Mm -hmm. I, uh, here's a way that I am diverse. Yeah. But to, but to put in front of me or to kind of slap it on my forehead and, and go, this is, this is a part of my identity. You can't set me from it. I was, I think I personally was diagnosed too late in life to fully accept. And the way that I was raised as well to, you know, I was raised to overcome obstacles mm. and to, to sink into autism as an identity is too ingrained in me as a way of, of um, not giving up, but, but, not working hard enough to achieve. Does that make yeah, sense? It's a cop out. It's an easy way out. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Exactly. You a don't cop need out. An easy, easy way, way out. out because people. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Being autistic, it's like being gay, being straight, being male, being female. Yeah, yeah. But who am I? What am I? Uh, and you are all those things. But at the same time, primarily, I would love to regard you as, you know, a comedian, scientist, scientific comedian, comedian, scientist. I just Beautiful. That's, that's really, really, because the, the, for me, calling oneself, when I was in school, to call myself a scientist was like, oh, that was you, who you aspire to being. And I married a science teacher, which for me is the most beautiful, respectful thing you could be, the love of science. I remember when I was a little boy, I had a phrase, I was scraping science off the walls when I was about four or six years of age, right? We were trying to get these science books out the library. My, what I didn't understand was I didn't know the mathematical ability. Oh, I've never had the mass ability. Four years of private tuition in school from the age of 12 to the age of 16 every Monday night, and I still couldn't get in. It broke my heart. You know, I was doomed to spend, I, should, I was somebody who should have spent my life in a stupid arts degree, you know, being surreal or something. And, it, and that's not what I did. I tried to do sensible things with science, electronics, and I didn't, wasn't any good at that. I needed a philosophy degree. This has been fantastic. I really feel that I've got to something very personal, very heartfelt to yourself, which I hope if we present it properly would 
would empower you to, to go on to be, you know, yourself more than you've been allowed to be by all the, these people that we've been describing. Or it's <laughs> so that I have so been myself all this time and that's why I am in the, <laughs> in the position that I'm in. Okay. Right. It's, you know, you know, what caused what? Yeah. Causality. That's a whole other podcast in itself. <laughs> wow. All right. Thank you very much, Rhea. Cheers. It is a pleasure. Thanks Rhea. so much, Paul. Hi, folks. I'd love it if you have a chance, if you check out my podcast, it's called Real Lena's Behind, and it gets into the facts behind the headlines. Every episode, I speak to one expert guest, and I look into a story in the news in depth. For example, the science behind coronavirus, I speak to Professor Greg Towers from the Department of Infection and Immunity at UCL, all about coronavirus. So all the things that you think or you're not sure of, like what is a virus? Should we keep bats as pets? We cover in that episode. In another episode, I speak to Joe Richards, the economist, and he talks me through this massive bailout, or is it a bailout, that we've just had from the government regarding lockdown, the 80% for employees, furloughing, what is that? Why aren't some companies paying for their own employees? So that's another episode. If you enjoy it, please do feel free to also give it a quick review. You can find it on all the platforms. It's on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on some of the more funky ones, or else just Google me, Rialina, and it should come up. Thanks.